0: Hi, I'm Graham McLennan, and in episode number four of Chef Demoni, we consider the oyster, and we also consider beer. Let's get started.
1: Talking to chefs,
0: and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food, it's Chef DeMoni. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Oysters and beer. I love them both, so talking to the guests for today's show was a real treat. And from the interviews you're about to hear, I learned what I should be putting on top of my oysters, or not, and which beers to pair with them. So the interviews were a great learning experience for me too. My first guest today is a good friend, Richard Boucher of the Curious Oyster Catering Co. I met Richard when we worked together at the restaurant Burdock & Co. in Vancouver, and at the time, Richard was building his oyster catering business. Now it's his full-time job. But Richard hasn't always been an oyster fan. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) And had you yet ever eaten an oyster? No, not at all.
2: So here I was, like, face to face with this thing that I'd refused to eat. But
0: from that shaky start, Richard has built a full-time career in the world of oysters. After my talk with Richard, I meet up with a new friend, Chad McCarthy. Chad is a lawyer I know through a mutual friend and colleague, another lawyer, Kathleen Bradley. Chad's a really interesting guy. Outside of law, he has worked as an electrical engineer, he's designed synthesizers, he plays in a band, and he brews his own beer. And on that subject, a very important topic, beer. Chad is a certified expert. My talk with Chad at Brassneck Brewery is coming up soon, including the moment I learned just which beer can go perfectly with dessert. But first to Kafka Coffee and Tea on Vancouver's Main Street for my interview with Richard Boucher of the Curious Oyster Catering Co., Here we are on a beautiful spring, sunny Saturday afternoon at Kafka Coffee and Tea on Main Street. I'm here with my friend Richard Boucher, and Richard owns and runs a company called The Curious Oyster. And he is the friend that I go to with all of my questions about oysters. I've yet to skunk him. Richard knows all there is to know about oysters, and he's going to share much of that knowledge with us today. So, Richard, thanks for being here. Thanks for appearing on Demony.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: And we're going to come to... The Curious Oyster, of course, the business that you're running in and around Vancouver. But before we get there, can you tell the listeners how you came to be interested in oysters, how you came to be working in this very niche field? This is an interesting
2: story because I actually grew up in a small town in Windsor, Ontario, as far away from oysters as it could possibly be. Like suburban Ontario, mean potatoes, never even, like, oysters never even was an option for me to eat because it, doesn't, it just doesn't exist there at all. And I remember when I was, it would have been like early 20s, like maybe around 20, 20 or 21. I did like a backpacking trip through South Africa with a good friend of mine. And we ended up in an area called Knysna in South Africa. And they had, it's known for oysters. And I refused to eat them. Like absolutely refused to eat them. I thought it was the most revolting thing I could ever, and it was just, that moment was unbelievable to me
0: was it because they were raw or just so new and different what was it that made you want to stay so far away from them
2: it was definitely the idea of a raw oyster and not really being exposed to seafood other than kind of fish and chips and where I grew up was really what kind of pushed me away from even trying this and I kicked myself for for, for this situation (laughs) because seeing where I am at today it's unbelievable that I never tried an oyster at that time however When I came back, I was living in in Ottawa at the time. When I came back, I was living in an apartment that was above a restaurant that was just opening up. And this restaurant was called the Whalesbone Oyster House. And Mina, I had left my last job. I needed a job when I got back, and there was this oyster house, and I thought, and it's right underneath me. It looks like a cool little place. Went for an interview there um, and thought, well, you know, this would be interesting. Oysters I kind of got exposed to oysters, never tried them, but I thought i 'm not going to have to eat them i 'm just going to be you know working for a house serving whatever. That interview was really funny. Josh the owner was behind the bar where the oysters were, and he started the interview by shucking oysters and putting them in front of me <laughs> and, and had you yet ever eaten no, an oyster? <laughs> no, not at all. So here I was, like face to face with this thing that i 'd refused to eat and now my job depended on me eating this oyster and I'm pretending and I, you know, I had to pretend so I just I just, I did it. I ate it. It was awkward. You know what I mean? Like I didn't, like I just going through this experience it was kind of like, it was kind of kind of a funny story. It ended with him shucking an enormous oyster. It was like an 8 year old BC oyster and I thought I, like I looked at it and I was like that's where I draw the line. I'm not, I'm not going to eat that thing. That was my first experience with oysters, which is really interesting because I get when people approach me, when people are afraid of oysters, are naive about oysters, or just like that general fear, I completely understand it because I was that guy. And I thought, I feel like I'm a master now at coercing people into trying oysters for the first time to make them not intimidating. Do do you remember the taste of that oyster and did you,
0: was it just like something you sort of closed your eyes and got through or did, yeah, okay, so you don't even remember
2: liking it, disliking it, it just swallowed it down? It, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean my nerves, of of course, you know what I mean?
0: (laughs) But Richard's experience in Ottawa definitely sparked his interest in oysters and when he later came west to Vancouver, he was surprised that there wasn't more going on with oysters in this city.
2: When I came here, I had gotten a job at an oyster bar. It's not, it's not open right now, but it was called Oyster, and it was in the old Stock Exchange building. And started chucking there. I quickly realized that the oyster culture in Vancouver, I was surprised by the oyster culture in Vancouver. I was surprised that there wasn't really an oyster culture in Vancouver and that Rodney's really, which I you know, love and respect, they've kind of dominated the market in Vancouver, but they're actually, Rodney himself is from PEI, Started Rodney's in Toronto, and then they franchised it to BC. And then I thought, how how weird that you know a franchise, an East Coast franchise is dominating the West Coast oyster market. And I thought, why why does BC not have its own oyster market? And that's that's what sparked the idea of starting our own oyster company because we thought hey, what's going
0: on. What year were you working at that oyster bar and having this experience with the oyster culture in Vancouver?
2: That would have been let's say. Six years ago, six seven years ago so really quite recent still yeah however, I've started to notice there's a big shift now in the oyster culture in Vancouver chewy's having opened up oyster, oyster Express I mean there's still the Joe's downtown yeah like it's like it's slowly expanding there's becoming more of a culture but there's also this there's still an insecurity around around oysters in BC and I've had conversations with people out east about this. And I'm starting to understand why this is, like our conservative kind of attitude towards oysters. Which is bizarre because we grow, 60% of the oysters Canada grows are grown here in BC. And I believe, don't quote me on this, but I believe we export about 80% of what we grow. And a lot of it goes to the States. So it's, it's kind of amazing that being in Vancouver, you would, you would expect there to be an enormous oyster culture where there's oyster bars everywhere and everybody's serving oysters. And I was very surprised that that wasn't the case.
0: Here's one theory on why oysters aren't more popular, particularly in a part of the world that produces so many of them. The whole subject is too confusing. There are so many different names and varieties and theories on what we should put on them that personally I feel overwhelmed and maybe I'm not alone in that. It's sort of like wine, hard to dip your toe into the topic. And when people are feeling overwhelmed, I think they're more reluctant to try what can be a simple, delicious food. So I asked Richard to give us Oyster 101 to break it down into bite-sized pieces for us. And Richard starts with the right time of year to eat oysters.
2: To start, one thing I've noticed in BC is we seem to be eating oysters, West Coast oysters, at the wrong time of year. That was the biggest thing. We're eating them in the summer. People are associating oysters with hot weather. And in fact, it's the opposite. Oysters, the colder the water, the better the oyster as a general rule. And I compare it to, like when I'm talking to people, I compare it to eating like a California strawberry in the dead of winter versus eating a field strawberry in the dead of summer. Two very different things. Both edible, but... That summer strawberry is going to be so much better than the you know than the California winter strawberry so that that number one understanding seasons eating oysters really um, in kind of late fall and I would say late spring those those two times and 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 in the winter as well we t- our, our water is not as cold as as some other areas where they tend to thin out but We had talked uh, sort of off the
0: record just before we started recording about the old rule that that I had said I recall from the Sherlock Holmes story, which is only eat oysters when there's an R in the month, which I think is just a clever way to say don't eat them in May, June, July and August. And that makes sense, given what you've just said, that that, uh, they're like any other natural product, there's a seasonality to them. And I understand you were saying there's also, or was at least, sort of a a sustainability angle to that as well given how they breed or when they breed.
2: Yeah, so uh, from what I read, I think it dated back into, I don't know what century in France where they were trying to protect the species because they procreate in summer months and they were fishing them at the time, not farming them. Um, It was a way to ensure a constant supply of oysters every year. That combined with all of the issues that we see with oysters in terms of illness, things like red tide and and, vibrio. Vibrio is a natural occurring bacteria that exists when water reaches about 15 degrees. It starts to kind of multiply in the waters and in high concentration can make humans sick. There's the sustainability aspect when you're harvesting oysters wild, and then to avoid illness. However, the illness thing, not really an issue anymore because of the heavy testing that our oyster farmers have to go through before they release their product. That's an insane, I mean, the fact that they're testing these things on a weekly holding product until things are released. It's it's a very interesting procedure, but it, it really, I really do trust my oyster farmers when they're going through this process all the time. Like I don't I never really think of ill I never really think of oysters as being as dangerous as people think they are.
0: Yeah, and how about how about types? I understand that the, the from you, ten minutes ago, that the, the native species of oyster the native native to the West Coast species of oyster we we, we don't grow and we don't eat anymore. Why is that and, and what's taken its place?
2: It's a difficult oyster to grow. It's a very slow-growing oyster, it's a very small oyster, and it, does, it has a very, <laughs> very terrible shelf life in uh, comparison to the ones that we're growing today. The ones that we're growing today is an Asian-Pacific variety that was introduced at the turn of the century at the, in like, I think, I think it was like 1905, they say specifically, when it was introduced. It's a very fast-growing oyster. You can really manipulate the flavor, the size of this oyster through different growing techniques. And is it has to be ninety-five percent of the oysters we eat here in okay. BC is so this specific oyster. And that's a specific species, I take it? Yes. Okay. What's the name of that one? Latin name is Crayosteria Giga. And Giga meaning it grows really fast. Like okay. it's like, cause it's it gets really big they get really big. And I'm sure anybody who's been on a BC coast has seen these enormous oysters growing. <laughs> So let's think about that for a second. First of all, the species native to the West
0: Coast, we don't grow on the West Coast. And the species we do grow on the West Coast accounts for 95% of the oysters produced. But if these oysters are all, or essentially all the same species, why are there so many different names? Again, confusing. So I asked Richard if the different names of oysters come simply from where and how the oysters of the same species are
2: grown. Like region and and, uh, growing techniques. Like, a lot of people are familiar with the kushi. But, like, a kushi and a Fanny Bay oyster and a Royal Miyagi and a Black Pearl, and, like, they're all, they're all the same oyster. They're just grown, grown in different ways. Yeah, it's really interesting because you, you put these things side by side and they look completely different from each other. A lot of them, sometimes what they do is they'll kind of, they'll do, like, select breeding, so they'll actually take the most ideal oyster and then put those together and then they'll start to propagate like they'll put those together in a tank to get those to propagate so that they can get like a a better shaped oyster. But again, it's all still the same variety of oyster.
0: After our talk on oyster species and names, I asked Richard to tell me about how they're actually grown. How do those oyster farmers turn a very few species of oysters into so many different
2: varieties? It's different from coast to coast. Uh, on the west coast, the two main ways of growing oysters for raw consumption, like the, like the ones that you're gonna see in, in, at, at your typical oyster bar, those are grown either on trays. They kinda look like bread trays, like plastic trays. Square with a pole through the middle and you stack them together. Usually about, I wanna say, like maybe eight stacked high. And then they submerge them in the water on a floating raft. These are grown in remote areas. There's no Usually you can't access them by road, you have to access them by boat. So it's kind of pristine water, clean water. And then in this way, I, I think the idea here is that you can kind of manipulate the oyster so it's kind of protected and you can kind of sink the oyster down. So like they grow them anywhere from I would say six feet to about 30 feet and you can Drop the lines to where the food is in the water to ensure that they're continuously growing. They grow faster this way too.
0: That makes sense. So, that's part of the obviously part of the skill of the farming is knowing where the ideal food location level is and then adjusting the height accordingly. Yeah.
2: In that process, there's a lot of pulling the oysters out of the water, grading them. Tumbling is a big process that they do here. This is to kind of keep the oysters in a uniform shape. When the oysters aren't on the beach and they're not being roughed around by the waves and the water, they tend to just kind of fan out and have uh, kind of razor sharp edges. The idea here with the tumbling process is kind of like when you tumble a stone, you're trying to smooth out the edges and it actually concentrates the growth of the oysters so that kind of the growth goes into the cup portion and it makes it makes for a kind of deep cup oyster, because remember these oysters grow really fast. So you have to be on top of them all the time, otherwise they can really, I've seen them where they just get out of control in terms of growth. When there's, especially when there's a lot of food in the water at that time of year, they just, you need to, they're pulling them out, I wanna say once a week, sometimes twice a week. There are some processes where they figured out a way to tumble them every day, mechanically or systems using the tide to tumble them to keep them rolling all the time so that they're never really kind of getting out of control and fanning out and becoming an undesirable
0: oyster, yeah. So that's the tray method, and then is there what's the other of the two big methods on the West Coast?
2: After that, it's just beach culture. This is a very natural way of growing oysters. Oftentimes, what they'll do is they'll start them off on the trays to get a uniform-shaped oysters, and then they'll throw them on the beach. Beach is a slow-growing oyster. There's a lot more minerals on the beach, so the, so the oyster, like there's a lot more calcium bicarbonate in that water, because as the waves are rolling in, rolling out, eroding all the shells, the oysters can take that in and really harden up their shells. But because the water's so rough, they get exposed to the air and the sun and everything when the tide rolls out, it takes a lot longer to grow them that way. And you're also now exposing them to more predators, starfish and moon snails and all that thing. So
0: What's the timeline? I understand East Coast a little more slow growing than West Coast. but what's the timeline from I forgot, is it called a seed when it's a super little baby? Okay, from seed to when you're shucking an oyster?
2: Tray culture, I feel like for a small size oyster, it's, I would say about a year and a half. I'd say one to, like one and a half years to two and a half years is usually. Beach cultured. you're three, three years, four years before you start to.
0: And those are those are both West Coast times, so East Coast, we're looking at a little longer.
2: East Coast, minimum around four years, before four year, yeah. So it's fair to say oysters
0: are not a quickly grown product, they are not fast food and I asked Richard for his thoughts on how oysters contribute to the environment.
2: They're filter feeders, and they're, they have the ability to pump. I don't know the exact stats, but they have the ability to pump an enormous amount of water through them when they're heavily active, when they're really feeding. I know one of the major concerns in our coastal waters is agricultural runoff, where we're pumping a lot of nitrogen on the fields, and then that ends up in our waters. Oysters consume a lot of nitrogen, and the, and the
0: nitrogen, I think this is right, it's, it's coming from fertilizer. Exactly, on field.
2: exactly. Because what ends up happening with the nitrogen is it creates these big algae blooms, and then eventually the algae dies, sinks to the bottom, creates CO2, and then can actually create dead zones. So the oysters are actually reversing that by consuming the nitrogen, preventing the algae blooms, preventing them from creating these kind of dead zones in the oceans. They're really amazing at kind of restoring all the damage that we're doing essentially. To me, it's like cutting down trees when, you know, when we're eliminating oysters, it's like cutting down trees. If you look at the stories, I mean, New York is now dumped, they're dumping millions of dollars into restoring their oyster beds, like around the city. They used to have the largest oyster beds in the world there and have completely decimated <laughs> their, their species around there. Their government and their nonprofit organizations just collecting shells from all the local oyster bars in that area and trying to create natural oyster beds, like areas for oysters to be able to seed and come back. Well, let's move on now, Richard, to talk a little bit more
0: about your business, The Curious Oyster. And I've seen you in action predominantly at uh, charity events that you very kindly helped me with at the Growing Chef's annual gala dinner. So I've had the pleasure of experiencing uh, The Curious Oyster firsthand. But for the listeners, tell them about the business, what you do as a full oyster catering operation.
2: <laughs> really, I mean that that is all in terms of catering, we are only supplying oysters. A big part of our business now is becoming the oyster purveyors for for other catering companies. Like a lot of clients of ours, like the catering companies, don't deal with oysters every day, and because we do and we're experts at it. We just kind of take over their oyster programs, in a nutshell, and it's anything. And I mean, mainly it's a lot of corporate events, uh, Christmas parties, that kind of things. Right now, we're into wedding industry, backyard barbecues, house parties, and it's fun. It's a lot of fun because we get to just, you end up anywhere and you get to talk to these people about oysters, learn about their stories, we tell them about our stories,
0: yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's one of the reasons I love cooking at Burdock was the open kitchen and the chance to interact with guests, right? It's just that you have these amazing experiences
2: when you connect with people who are really interested in food, whatever it happens to be that you're working on. It's, and oysters just, you either get the scared, timid, Good. I don't want to go near that thing, and then the one who's telling you stories about, you know, barrels of oysters when they were young, coming off the train, and Christmas time, and like, so many stories. My favorite, though, is the apprehensive oyster eater. Is the, one, the one coming in for their first experience, their first? because I just look at them and I know, I know what it is, I know. And my first question is always, what do you think this oyster is going to be like? The two things they always tell me, or the two things that I always hear, is that they're going to be slimy, and that they're gonna be fishy. And then I say, okay, it's gonna be the opposite of that. Because oysters, in my mind, are not slimy. They're actually quite clean. They can be quite clean and crisp, especially if you're eating them in the colder months. They can be quite crisp. And then in terms of fishiness, it's like it's not, it's not related to fish. It's not fish at it. all they can't. <laughs> how can it be fishy it, 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 if it's it, not it, fish scientifically <laughs> cannot be fishy <laughs> yeah. and then the response is always the same then they, they do it and they the other thing I always encounter which I don't really understand where it comes from is not chewing your oyster I don't know where it comes from I get asked all the time do I chew it do I not chew it do I just swallow it and I see so many people who have eaten oysters for years who are just swallowing them and not chewing them I don't understand it. I don't know where it comes from. I've tried to look it up. I don't know where it comes from.
0: Interesting. Do you chew your oyster? Yeah, I
2: yeah do. of course I do. Because yeah, I, I want to taste it. Yeah, exactly.
1: I
0: wonder if that just comes from. I'm just thinking off the top of my head if it comes from apprehension. You know, I just want to get this down without tasting it because I'm worried it's going to be slimy and fishy.
2: But what's the what's the point? What's the point? Why You're even? Questioned. Why even? Go? <laughs> it's more people doing it on a dare than trying to enjoy it. And there's so much, I mean, the flavors are subtle in an oyster. So chewing it is absolutely necessary if you want to get anything out of it. But yeah, that's my, that's my favorite. That's my favorite walking them through that experience.
0: Do you have a, a recommendation for, um, I don't want to say topping, it makes it sound like a pizza, for, for <laughs> something to put on the oyster for the beginner. Is, um, is just to squeeze a lemon, what, what's your recommendation for a first timer on uh, something to help with the
2: experience? I know a lot of people think, like a lot of people are purists and they think I'm not putting anything on my oyster, which I completely understand, especially at certain times of year you don't you really don't need to put anything on the oyster. A little bit of some sort of acid is helps because oysters are strong and mineral, like they're very they can be very metallic. I usually it's funny, west coast I for West Coast oysters I always say like a couple dash like a couple drops of lime. East coast a couple drops of lemon. I don't know why specifically East Coast goes better with lemon and West Coast goes better with lime, but I find just a little bit of that for their first experience is a good way to kind of balance the oyster out, especially because it's going to be very salty and finish a little bit metallic.
0: The next interview I'm going to do for this episode of Chef Timoni is with a friend of a friend. He's a lawyer but also a Cicerone and so I'm going to talk to him about beer generally and then get his thoughts on good matches for beers
2: uh, that work well with oysters. What are your thoughts? What's a drink or a couple of drinks that pair well with oysters? I drink wine. It's always wine. Yeah. I always drink wine. There's, you know, uh, Brian, a friend of ours, from uh, Racine Wine Imports. They bring in these fantastic muscadets. That's my go-to all the time. That's grown in like, these are grapes grown in Nantes, like France, so it's like coastal. There's a lot of shell minerality in that soil and it pairs perfectly with oysters. Wonderful. Clean, crisp. Because that's what you want. I mean, you want to obviously you want to stay away from rosés, anything with tannins, anything oaked, things like that. You want to stay away from that because that Makes things more metallic when you're pairing it with oysters in your mouth, which can make it unpleasant.
0: Okay, last question. So if anybody's looking to have a party doing a corporate event, of course they should look up The Curious Oyster and they can find you at thecuriousoyster.ca. That's it. Uh, Also on Instagram, I'll put a link to, to your profile with the episode notes what if somebody's just going out once uh, one or two people do you have any recommendations on great ways to enjoy oysters in and around vancouver anywhere in bc really one, uh, one thought i had i i did this a couple of times and thoroughly enjoyed it did a little oyster picnic we could pick up some picked up some oysters went down to you know near the water at false creek and yeah. uh shucked them by the water and and it was a, a magical experience anyway that's one idea any other <laughs>
2: For restaurants I like to I like to encourage people to go to places that are where they're going through large volumes of them to ensure freshness. Because freshness in an oyster is everything. It's absolutely everything. A little place called Oyster Express. Sean he's a meticulous shucker. And I have so much respect for what he does, for, for what he does there. And I, I encourage people to go there and try his oysters. And then when it comes to selecting oysters when you're going out to buy them, Again, pay attention to harvest dates. I'm always looking at harvest dates when I'm going, you know, if you, if you go to Lobster Man, for example, asking when these oysters, it's going gonna, it's gonna to annoy everybody. It's going to annoy them all. But freshness is everything when it comes to an oyster. Yeah.
0: And, and that's, is it under the regulations The oysters in bags, they all have tags on them with the... They, and that has the harvest date information. It does. So absolutely. It's, it's absolutely going to be there for the asking if people
2: want to want to make the request. Absolutely. Everybody's going to hate me for saying that, but yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you heard it here first.
0: Well, that's great, Richard. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's a real pleasure to catch up and thanks for sharing all of your knowledge with the, uh, the Chefdemoni crowd.
2: No worries. Thanks for having me. That
0: was some serious consideration of the oyster, and my thanks to Richard for taking the time to share his expertise. I keep saying the word consider alongside the word oyster, and that's just a reference to one of my favourite authors, MFK Fisher, and to her book, Consider the Oyster. You know, if modern media coverage of the culinary world has got you down, if you're feeling overwhelmed with TV shows that are about drama and competition and not so much about food, I recommend reading some MFK Fisher, her writing is quite wonderful. And now for a beer. Chad McCarthy is a man of many talents. Law, engineering, music, and beer. Chad was one of the first certified Cicerones in Canada, and a Cicerone is to beer what a sommelier is to wine, which is to say, an expert. So it's fair to say that Chad knows his beer. But I was really glad to learn that Chad, like many true enthusiasts, isn't remotely snobby about his area of expertise.
1: Just drink what you like. Beer is generally pretty food friendly. You really can't go wrong. And if you like a beer with a certain type of food, then that's the right beer. Full stop, regardless of any rules anyone else can tell you.
0: And as you'll hear in our interview, Chad comes up with some great recommendations for pairing beer with food, including beer pairings for desserts and even a chocolate bar. This guy makes a lot of sense to me. So let's get to my discussion with Cicerone Chad McCarthy with some apologies for the boisterous background noise at Vancouver's Brassneck Brewery. Here we are on a beautiful spring Wednesday evening at Brassneck Brewery on Main Street. Delighted to be here with Chad McCarthy, whom I've just met. Chad is a friend of a friend, our mutual friend Kathleen Bradley, who connected us. And uh, Chad, thanks very much for uh, taking the time and for appearing
1: on Chef Timonium. Well, thanks for having me. I mean, it's tough to refuse a you know a free beer and to go on and on about beer, but uh, I'm happy to oblige. Delighted you're here.
0: Just some background: you're a lawyer, so you're covering the, the lawyer portion of the show for us today. Well, let's move on to the uh, to the beer part of the interview and the process of you becoming a Cicerone. And let's go back to when your interest really peaked in beer. And I understand that was happening when you were working as an engineer in Silicon Valley and a co-worker of yours was a real serious home brewer and would bring some of his production into the office and, and you would spend time uh, before monthly department meetings, you know, uh, sampling his beer and coming up with food pairings. So is that when your interest in the whole subject area really started to take off?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I really... My experience with beer to that point would be much like anyone else growing up in British Columbia, encountering the sorts of standard light lagers that we had at the time. When I moved to California, I I specifically remember first having a Sierra Nevada pale ale, which tasted like something, like like these wonderful Cascade hops, and that opened my eyes a bit. So there were a few other beers to try down there. Fortunately I had a co-worker that homebrewed and I was I was curious, so I hung out with him several times when he homebrewed and asked a lot of questions and gave him a hand, and then uh, he managed to have our manager of our department approve him to supply beer to our monthly department meetings which is really quite a coup uh, but I, I guess he was willing to do it and they would pay for the materials and so because I was his homebrewing assistant we would sample his batch and think about what sort of food might pair with it yeah having really no formal training and it, it was still pretty fun so yeah I learned a little bit about home brewing and, and you know appreciating the food Paired well with beer and vice versa, so that was a lot of fun. Even though I wasn't actually homebrewing at the time.
0: Well, we'll talk about some of your experiences when you did come back to Vancouver, and that was
1: was that 2009-ish you came back, or was well, that no,
0: or was it before?
1: I actually came back to Vancouver to go to law school in the early 2000s, and so after I, I had graduated and, and, and begun practicing, I wanted to do more more homebrewing. Uh, didn't really have an outlet in terms of a social group to discuss homebrewing with fortunately right right around that 2009 time period uh, my my wife was searching around online and found a a beer course sort of a beer tasting and appreciation course there really wasn't that was a a very new thing for us. We hadn't heard of it. So we both took it. It was the first time it was offered at the Pacific Culinary Institute, and that really opened our eyes. The person that taught it is a friend of mine now, Chester Carey, who's a real beer and wine and barbecue aficionado, and it was really excellent and eye-opening. Around the same time, he introduced us to some people that had just started a homebrew club, which there hadn't been to my knowledge of Vancouver before, at least not one that was advertised. So they were in the early stages of starting a home group club kind of informally. So I got involved not right at the start, but fairly close to the start. And that was a uh, a, a nice way to meet other people with similar interests. And talk about your
0: transition from, you know, initially, we've covered initial interest and homebrew and finding a club, but then you took it much further and actually uh, pursued formal certification, formal education and certification. So, talk to the listeners about that process, about the examination, the
1: certified Cicerone exam, and, and later um, judging qualifications and experiences. Of course, that course that I mentioned that we took, me and my wife, it was in a sense a... Sort of a de facto preparation course for the Cicerone certification. Um, Cicerone is I, I think it's an Italian word, means guide. So I, it's, it's essentially a certification for being a beer sommelier, more or less. It was a fairly new certification at the time. I did a little bit more studying on top of the course that I took, and then the exam was offered here, and I took it and passed and became one of, I think, the first half dozen or so certified Cicerones in Canada uh, because it was so new at the time. Uh, and, and then th- that was a lot of fun. That also involved a tasting exam and a written exam and a, a practical component you had to videotape as well. And that was very much along the lines of being a beer sommelier. So how to serve beer, knowledge of beer styles, how to curate a beer list, those, those sorts of things. And how does the tasting work when you're doing,
0: I have a pretty good idea how beer tasting works. But I, I imagine your process was more formal yeah. than mine, so I'm doing it right <laughs> now. Right <laughs> And uh, is it similar to wine tasting? Do you you cover specific flavor profiles, or do you move from heavy to dark, or or what
1: is a structured
0: way to to approach beer tasting?
1: Well, I imagine it has a lot in common with wine tasting. I haven't done a ton of formal wine tasting, so I can't comment on all the similarities. I think beer is... There's slightly less talk about balance in beer, although balance is an important component of beer. Wine, there's, I think, very much... the balance of tannins and acid and sweetness and alcohol and these sorts of things and that that seems to be the language it's used. Beer you often are starting from a style perspective because there's a very 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 many styles of beer that have developed over the years in certain areas of the world and have become known as a style and being called a certain thing like you're drinking a Pilsner right now and that's a Beer from Germany. It's quite, un, quite an old style as far as beer goes. Uh, so there are, have been guidelines developed by an organization called the Beer Judge Certification Program out of the U.S. that lists not every style of beer in the world. It's sort of the most common styles you're likely to encounter in, in the U.S. and Canada and Western Europe. And often you're judging with an eye to style as a first criteria. For instance, if you have a pilsner that you're judging it's a nice light golden beer and it comes super dark brown even if it's a really great dark brown beer that tastes roasty and wonderful it's not a pilsner at that point because that's not the style. After we talked
0: about how to taste and judge beers Chad commented on something that can be a bit of a pet peeve for him how beer is served. He explained that the mechanics of serving beer are really important to how it tastes.
1: I think serving beer is very, very difficult, and that can often be how it gets spoiled. A brewer can do everything right, but as soon as it leaves the brewery, they have no control over the beer. And beer is much more perishable than wine is, especially if it's not pasteurized. You really want to keep it refrigerated for the most part. You really want to store it properly. You want to serve it properly in clean glassware. If you don't do that, you can ruin it and possibly the reputation of this great brewer. So the other thing is there's a real ritual around wine serving that is well understood and accepted. When someone will bring out a wine, you can taste a sample, make sure it's okay, and then it's poured. We come from a culture here in Canada where... The only beer was macro, fizzy, yellow lagers, and it was supposed to be cheap, and you were supposed to shut up and drink it, and the thought of sending a beer back like a bottle of wine was crazy, and they chase you out of the bar, but that's re- legitimately something you ought to be able to do if the beer is off and not tasting right, I think. Okay. So you've done the Beer Judge Certification Program, and, yes. and, and tell us about that, and then any experiences with judging that you've done following that program. Yeah, beer judging is not the same as the certification for being a Cicerone. The Cicerone, again, like I said, is, is, is more about being a sommelier for beer and being able to guide people to the correct beer and serve it properly. The BJCP, the Beer Judge Certification Program, is really comes from homebrewers and it's it's about judging beer not to assign a winner that's a secondary consideration it's really to give good feedback on a beer it's to taste a beer objectively describe what you taste and then describe how you might improve that beer or what's wrong with it and i think this is very valuable especially for people that don't have access to a sophisticated homebrew club you can send your beer to a competition a homebrew competition and get very very good feedback on what you might be doing wrong and how you might want to improve it which i think is a wonderful thing i think it's it's all volunteer based so it's it's a wonderful way to get back to the community Uh, having said that these same guidelines are used for commercial competitions For instance, the BC Beer Awards each year uses the BJCP guidelines. So we judge to the same standards as homebrew. Certain larger competitions will modify those guidelines for their own purposes, perhaps rearrange some categories or or create more categories. Certainly the more categories of beer you have, the more medals you can award, which is the whole purpose of having a commercial brewery enter a competition is they can brag about their medals. Uh, Which again, like I said, is not really the core original focus.
0: Let's take a, a, a brief detour chat from beer to talk about mead because I understand you're you're a certified the mead the judge, the judge me. as well. Here are my friends in Vernock and Coy I've sampled a little bit of mead and and really enjoyed it, but it's something I know so little about. So, maybe give the listeners just a quick overview. What is mead? How is it produced? And, and you know, when
1: should I be uh, enjoying a little glass of it? Well, mead certainly is something that's a bit hard to find, and it's a bit of a lost art, I think. Certainly, becoming a mead judge was a bit difficult, because the BJCP, that's the same judging organization that does the beer guidelines, also has a certification process for mead judges. Um, just getting the right personnel to host that set of exams here in Vancouver was a bit difficult but we managed to do it last summer so we've got a bunch of certified mead judges in town. Uh, Mead is a honey wine essentially. Beer is made from uh, grains or sugar water that's where the sugars are sourced from grains. Wine's made from grapes, mead is made from honey. So I think there's a lot of parallels between wine and mead. Certainly the language you use to judge it and talk about it is a bit similar. There's a lot of talk about balance and sort of tannins versus acidity, etc. You shouldn't expect mead to taste like honey though, in the same way that wine generally doesn't taste exactly like grapes, mead does not taste exactly like honey. It's perfectly acceptable to have meads that range from very dry to very sweet, That have low alcohol to very high alcohol, they might be stiff. They it sparkling. Um, it's, it's also very common to add spices or fruit or other additives to mead or, or to make hybrids with cider or beer It's have mead, half something else. Like so it's a pretty interesting drink, but it's one that's very difficult to get a handle on because there's not much available in the store usually.
0: From beer to mead, Chad clearly has some expertise. But interestingly, he keeps this interest as a hobby only. He doesn't work in the industry. And that's a decision that makes complete sense to me adding the money factor to a passion can really change it. So I asked Chad to share some experiences he's had, not as an expert, but simply as a guy enjoying a beer with friends.
1: If you're lucky enough to have a backyard in this town, which I know many people are not, there's just hanging out in a backyard on a sunny day, puttering about, perhaps making some tasty smoked meats if you have a smoker, if you have a garden, perhaps tending that, maybe brewing a batch of beer, and having friends drop by periodically to share a beer or bring something is is a really great way to spend an afternoon on a weekend. And certainly at the end of the day when you've finished your puttering and your meat smoking and all the rest of it, you can have a nice meal with people who come to share it with you and will probably bring something they've made during the day, too. So I've, I've had a lot of good experiences with that. I've been fortunate enough, especially through our homebrew club, to meet people that are quite talented at making various types of charcuterie and beer and other slow food, I guess, types of eating. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely not... Not gourmet in, in the inventive presentation and outlandish flavors based on sophisticated techniques. It's a little a little homier than that, but a really good a really good barbecue in the backyard. I mean, that's that's where you're going to find your best barbecues in a backyard. It's not in a store, so um, that's a wonderful thing. Absolutely, and isn't it interesting? I find
0: with whatever the pursuit happens to be, as long as you have a shared interest, it becomes. Quickly, more about the people and about the shared human experience around that, right? Whether it's beer or barbecue, beer and barbecue, music, cooking, whatever it happens to be, it's just a chance to bring great people together, and I think that's what we, I think that's what we enjoy most about these
1: passion projects. I don't know if you agree or not. Absolutely, I, I think in particular homebrewers, um, some are extroverted, but a lot I think are a, a little more of the patient, quiet type, perhaps, and so the nature of beer as a social lubricant can really can really help things along in terms of uh, having having these sorts of beat-ups i mean it's sort of the perfect hobby in that respect in that um, you can spend a lot of time by yourself quietly making these products but then when it comes time to share them you can also have a beer and have some good conversation people come out of their shells and and really you know tear it off down the garden path talking about the minutiae of brewing or Whatever other hobby they're into, uh, it's really a lot of fun to see people come alive when they're talking about something that they're really into. Awesome. Well, let's
0: move on, Chad, to, uh, well, we're we're really into this topic already, and it's beer and food. And I want to talk about some pairings because, well, for a number of reasons, but before we get to the specifics of pairing... I'm wondering if you can give general rules, if there are general rules. And I know with wine as an example, some people see lots of rules around pairing wine with food. And others say, you know what, just drink what tastes good to you and don't worry too much about the rules. But are there some general rules that people, if, if not to follow uh, to the letter, that are at least helpful to people in, in matching different beers with different foods?
2: Well, I'd say, first
1: of all, your comment about just drink what you like, that's the most important by far. Just drink what you like. Beer is generally pretty food-friendly. You really can't go wrong. And if you like a beer with a certain type of food, then that's the right beer. Full stop, regardless of any rules anyone else can tell you. If you really want to think about perfect pairings and trying to find the perfect beer to pair with a very specific food, there's some general principles, I guess, which are similar, I imagine, to pairing pairing other types of drinks with with food. There's certainly a three-word Mantra one can use there's complement, contrast, and cut. So, those are the, the, the three things you can think of. Uh, you can find complementary flavors in your beer to match a food. For instance, if there's sort of a some roastiness in your beer, like a darker beer, nuttiness, toastiness, that might go with more savory or meat based dishes. That's a compliment. Uh, contrasting is the opposite of that, of course, it's providing a counterpoint to your foods, like a beer and a sweet dish, that kind of thing. And then cut is effectively cleansing your palate if you have a heavy or a very, very savory dish with a lot of fat in it, you want to maybe try to cut through that. So, so, so beer that's bitter or well-carbonated, potentially acidic, those are the kind of things that are going to lift that fat off your tongue and you know keep you coming back for more.
0: Now, a more specific food question. I was speaking recently with a friend of mine, Richard Boucher, who's uh, an oyster expert. He's the, the friend that I go to for all things oyster. And we had a really interesting talk about production of oysters and consumption of oysters. And I'm for any recommendations you would have on
1: a, a, a great beer or two to go when we're uh, enjoying a plate of oysters uh, well i can't wait to hear the podcast because i love oysters too but i'm not necessarily all that knowledgeable about them the classic pairing if, if one had to just pick one in the thin air is an irish stout with oysters that's that's what people would probably quote right off the bat irish stout being a guinness or something of that nature and and that's that really is great i've had it it's wonderful pretty much with any shellfish. So Guinness as a beer is is black, it's very dark color, but surprisingly mild in flavor. It's got a bit of roast and a bit of mineral character and that matches the brininess of the oysters. That brininess in the oysters in turn brings out some subtle chocolate flavors in the beer. The beer has a creamy mouthfeel. It's served on nitrogen mixed gas, which gives it a, a very creamy kind of mouthfeel. And that complements the sort of sweet creaminess of some oysters. Uh, And the the roastiness and the slightly bitter finish of the beer kind of dries out the palate and doesn't allow the oysters to dominate. So that would be what I would say you would go-to first.
0: Well let's talk about a
1: few other pairings, Chad, because uh, I want to get some for my own summer.
0: (laughs) So, one, a lighter dish. We're here uh, in BC at the very, well, not the very start. We're we're just a couple of weeks in now to spot prawn season, and it always goes way faster than I think it will, and so I really need to get into the spot
1: prawns this year. What beer would go well with just some really simply steamed or sautéed prawns? Uh, Well, unfortunately, we're doing this interview right now and not Uh, after next weekend when a a homebrewing friend of mine has invited me to his backyard spot prawn (laughs) boil then I'd really know (laughs) I think lighter shellfish you really can't go wrong with a Pilsner maybe like you're drinking here and when I say Pilsner I don't necessarily mean a lucky lager that calls itself a Pilsner but like a German beer something that tries to match the original German Pilsner style, which is a light-colored beer that's got a nice graininess, pretty firm bitterness, high carbonation, a little bit minerally maybe, but really just palate cleansing, and uh, it's a bit delicate, and that kind of matches, I think, what the spot prawn would like. Another beer that I think would be good with both spot prawns and with oysters is a Guz, which is a bit of a funny word, I know. It's a Belgian beer, which is a blended beer. It's a blend of Lambic's. So spontaneously fermented beers from Belgium, old and new ones blended together, and you get a beer that's a little bit acidic, so it's a bit tart, a little bit funky, a little bit fruity, maybe a little bit sweet and sour, but you can find examples that are not super overwhelming, super powerful, and so that can be that can be a neat option, I think, with an oyster or a spot around, So You can look for a goose. <laughs> How do we spell that? Oh boy, I always get it wrong. I think it's G-U-E-U-Z-E, but... You might want to check Google on that. (laughs) We can consult the Googler. (laughs) What about vegetables,
0: salads, and I'm thinking specifically of, I was at the Farmer's Market uh, a few weeks ago, and you know what, it was raining, so even though I got there late, Still at Hannebrook Farms, at their station, they still had a huge basket of asparagus, which in the normal course, if it's sunny out, you've got to be there by 9.02 or you won't get any asparagus. So I was delighted to find this. Uh, and it's really my favourite vegetable, so this time of year I'm feeling really lucky. But a beer to go with, uh, maybe some grilled, grilled asparagus. Wow.
1: That's actually interesting you brought up asparagus because I think that's one of the classic difficult to pair with foods. You know, people, it's sort of like in the wine world, but people aren't really sure what to say. They'll say, oh, just champagne. Champagne. Asparagus, champagne. Asparagus, I think, I thought about it a bit, I think a a Belgian triple would be a nice pair with asparagus. A triple is a uh, a strongly alcoholic beer, you're probably at least 8% or 9% with it. It's very light in color though, it's a nice golden color and clear. It's quite unique. It's, it's got some subtle fruitiness and a little bit of spiciness. It's got a lot of warming from the alcohol. So it has a, a hint of sweetness and richness, but it's still with a dry finish.
0: Well, sticking with, uh, sticking with the grill, how about a big, beautiful... It was funny, I was just interviewing earlier uh, today uh, a former colleague of mine he was talking about, he's, he's left the industry. And I said, how are you interacting with food these days? And he said, well, you know, cooking in a home quite a lot and enjoying food. And hopefully that's a big, fat, grilled ribeye with some bone marrow butter on it. So, <laughs>
1: so, so let's say that's
0: let's say that's the uh, dish. What uh, beer can take the same place as,
1: you know, what I might reach for on the wine side, which could be a, you know, a Meritage or a, you know, a big Malbec or a Cab Wow. Well, taking the place of wine for that kind of steak and we've described it is a a pretty tall order. Uh, If it was me, I'd be reaching for the same thing. I, I, it brings back the memory of having a, a nice New York steak at a restaurant and a Ravenswood Red Infidel and just saying, wow, this is a match made in heaven. So I can't really argue with that at all. But in terms of a beer that's maybe taking the place of a big, bold red wine, there is a beer called a Flanders Red. It's also in a Belgium from the Flanders region. It's sometimes colloquially known as the Burgundy of Belgium. So it has some red wine characteristics. It's aged in oak. It's a bit sour. It can be quite sour, actually. And it's quite funky. usually has some Britannomyces character for the red wine people that like their wine aged in oak. So a lot of kind of... Farmyard flavors, they would say, straw, horse blanket, that sort of stuff. So that that would be an interesting option, and it would cut through some of the fat of a ribeye steak, uh, especially if you're a red wine lover, it might be a way a, a real gateway beer to some of the uh, more interesting beers out there if you don't think there's anything interesting going on in the beer world. Um, there's, there's a similar style called an, an Eau Bruin, which is much like a Flanders Red, perhaps a little less sour, a little more in the uh, darker malt uh, flavor regions, a little more roasty and toasty, that's probably what I would go for. The classics they talk about with steak are stout or porter, which are big, roasty, slightly more clean beers. And I think that would work, those big roast flavors would work with the roast flavors in the meat. Personally, I want a little more zing, a little more acid fruit or something with my steak. So I would prefer a stout or a quarter with a, some sort of braised meat or a stew or something probably. So uh, I wouldn't be the first thing i reached for with a, with a nice medium rare ribeye.
0: And how about as we're moving toward the end of the meal
1: here, what about uh, beers to go with cheese? Well... Beers are really great with cheese, and I think that's a great option. My favorite pairing is, is kind of a flavor explosion, and, and that's a very, very, well, perhaps a very, very old cheddar, but more likely a very musky blue cheese, just as strong as you like it, Stilton or something of that nature with either a double IPA or an American barley wine. Now these are these are giant beers. These are very alcoholic, very bitter, slightly caramelly, really a wonderful match though. The fatty musky blue cheese is cut right through by this extremely aggressive bitter beer. It still has a bit of sweetness and a bit of caramel that you might think of like your quince jelly or something with your cheese plate, that kind of thing. It's really an experience. If, if you, if you can handle the giant flavors of blue cheese and of barley wine on their own, then uh, marrying them together is, is a wonderful thing. And last pairing question, can I have a beer with dessert? Of course you can. And I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm not a wine sommelier, but there's no question in my mind, beer is a far better option for dessert than wine is, undoubtedly. Beer has some inherent advantages though. One is that beer can be made from roasted grains. Essentially that's barley that's been toasted somehow. Those reactions, those browning reactions are called melanoidin reactions and you can develop flavors ranging from grainy, crackery, caramelly, toasty, roasty, coffee, all that range of flavors. Not really that available to wine people, unless you're getting that flavor from a barrel or something. So we've got all these great coffee-like flavors or sort of candied sugar sorts of flavors to play with. Um, And I think that's where it's real strength is. You can have a fruit beer with your dessert and that's fine. But I think the, the classic is a beer float. And that's dropping ice cream in your beer. Now, don't do that with your pill because you're not going to like it. But the classic beer for that is a Russian Imperial Stout. I like to think of that as a beer where everything is stirred up to eleven. It's a black really alcoholic, very bitter, but also with a substantial sweetness beer that has just massive notes of espresso and coffee and dark fruit and you name it, the kitchen sink essentially. But mostly it's a very bitter alcoholic beer and you drop a scoop of good vanilla ice cream into that and suddenly it melts a little bit and you have what's essentially a complex mocha Load or shake but with a lot more bitterness so you, you have to make sure to get the right stout though it's got to be a russian imperial stout and a, a decent scoop of ice cream but that's that's really wonderful i think
0: i've just planned dessert for the weekend barbecue menu
1: <laughs> I wanted to run
0: an article past you. It was an article published in GQ by David Chang of uh, Momofuku in uh, New York and, and elsewhere, and he makes the case for what he calls shitty beer. And he, he says he also appreciates you know well crafted beers, uh, and he doesn't knock them or knock the interest in them. But his point is that the cheap mass produced stuff. What a buddy of mine who, who also loves this stuff loves this stuff, and I think you used a similar term. He calls it macro brew. Uh, and David Chang says that he enjoys, well, he does enjoy those good craft beers, that weak, watery beer is always a, a safe option to pair with food, and really a good
1: option to pair with food. Does, does he have a point? Um, I think he does. I think the way he made the point is maybe a little controversial, potentially on purpose. He was confusing a quality evaluation in saying that shitty beer was a good pairing option with a style qualification. Like what he was talking about is light American lager, you know, those bud lights of the world, those types of beers that we all know. And certainly those are those are fine beers. Those are actually very difficult to brew well because they are so flavorless. Any flaw is going to really stick out. And you you can taste some of those if you know what you're looking for in some of those beers. But really, those are not very useful beers. There's nothing wrong with them. I think maybe what he was railing at is certain beer snobs that feel they need a a spectacularly weird beer to have it be a legitimate drinking option. That's definitely not true. I know plenty of professional brewers in town here that will drink Macro Lager and enjoy it. And now they have their favorites, and there are certain ones they don't like because they really know what they're talking about. I think he had a point. I think the way he went about it is wrong because it doesn't. He was saying the beer had to be shitty. What he meant was he wanted a light, flavorless beer to achieve something, and and that's totally legitimate. And I think that there are better options out there than, for instance, a Bud Light. I've held a lot of off-flavors tasting classes where you um, doctor beers with common off-flavor chemicals to help people identify them when they taste beer later. And we actually stopped using Bud Light because it has an off flavor in it that's noticeable enough that it'll interfere with the other dog doctrine you're doing. So I think there's also craft versions of those beers and there's you know better and worse examples of them. There's nothing wrong with them. I think that if you don't like a beer simply because of the branding or the people who drink it, that's maybe doing yourself a disservice. You should drink what you like and you should actually taste it and not just look at the label. So I mean, again, stapling yourself to Bud Light and not to craft beer is just as bad as stapling yourself to craft beer and not a macro option, if that's what you want. I like that advice. <laughs> well, let's go to uh, just a few tips for
0: listeners, Chad, if I can get your thoughts here. there, You know, there's so many craft breweries, certainly in our town, Vancouver, these days, but I'm seeing them everywhere. My hometown, Thunder Bay, where I grew up, craft breweries yeah coming online there and doing great things currently i'm uh, calling gibson's on the sunshine coast my hometown and and persephone is there and there's uh gibson tapworks right in the village they do really nice stuff so i'm not sure if this is a fair question i asked my friend richard where he would recommend people go to get oysters and and he had a bit of trouble with the question because he goes to the suppliers right he goes (laughs) he goes to the Close to the ocean and gets them out of the water and it may be similar for you but are there any particular gems either uh beers or breweries, places to go in and around Vancouver that you'd recommend?
1: You know, there certainly are, but it's really hard to pin down just one or two. I think it's a great experience going to brewery lounges. I think that Cratford Tourism is a wonderful thing. There's certainly a couple of great walking areas in Vancouver. One of them is centered right around where we are now in Brassneck Brewing. There's several breweries within just a couple of minutes walk here. So if you want to go try a bunch of different beers from a bunch of different breweries, it's a great place. Even more breweries is the so-called yeast van area which is a play on East van of course that's centered around Venables and Clark Drive I think within to my calculation within about a 10 minute walk there's something like 10 breweries and a distillery that's a great option you can go from, from brewery to brewery see what you like I won't actually recommend a brewery but I, I will recommend the alibi room as a wonderful place to go drink beer it's one I really started with the uh, owner the Alibi Room I actually own Brassneck here. I think the service there is wonderful. They're very knowledgeable. The beer is always in great condition, and they serve beer from all kinds of different breweries, mostly throughout BC, but also some interesting outside-of-BC options. So if you want to get a, some good advice and a, a good, good read on, on what, what beers you might like, that's a great place to start. Okay, thank you. And then my last question, any and, and I think
0: I know the answer to this already because you're, you're very strong on drinking what you like and, and not judging beer by its label or its uh, supporters which I think is great advice but I can tell you a story one time I was doing a cooking shift in Vegas finished up and it was I think I drank I'm sure I drank four liters of water during service I was drinking out of a 500 mil tub and I drank eight of them and I was parched by the end of it because it was hot and it was dry and I was walking back to my hotel on the strip and I went by one of the you know Walgreens or somewhere where they uh, open 24 hours of course and they sell beer and I went in and I bought a 25-ounce can of Bud Light Lime. And that it was, like, one of the best things I've ever tasted in my life. <laughs> I, I, I will state on the record, I thoroughly enjoyed that Bud Light Lime. So, That's the
1: context, yeah, then, right?
0: I mean, you needed a Bud Light Yeah, lime, huh? absolutely. It was a beer for that moment. So... Any experiences like that you'd like to share where you enjoyed a beer perhaps that you didn't want to tell your
1: Cicerone friends about or just enjoyed a beer that you weren't expecting to in a a situation you um, weren't expecting? Oh, absolutely, for sure. I'm going to make a quick comment about the lime thing first. Here's a little bit of trivia that might be interesting to some people. There's a certain brand of beer that features a lime wedge prominently on top of a clear bottle. That's part of their marketing. Very interesting advantage to drinking lime with that beer. Hops have a component to them that's affected by ultraviolet light, and if you expose beer that has that off-component in it to ultraviolet light, it will skunk. It will taste literally like skunk. It develops for captains. Now, that's the reason beer is stored in cans or brown bottles. If you have a green bottle or a clear bottle like that beer has, it will skunk when it's under fluorescent light or daylight very rapidly. If you add lime to a beer, it will cover that up. So I'm not saying your Bud Light like Lime had that problem, but if you're going to drink that beer, you probably should put a wedge of lime in it because if you don't, it's going to be really skunky unless you got it in a light-proof box which someone covered. Uh, so just that throwing that out there. That is great advice. And advice I've been following, I guess,
0: just because I succumbed to the marketing like everybody else.
1: There you go. There you go. It's perfect. Yeah, In terms of, you know, beers that are... Maybe guilty pleasures or something. I, I don't. I'm not really precious about beer. I'll drink what I like. Like I was saying earlier, though, I, I really, I don't discount a well-made macro lager. That's sort of the whipping boy among the craft beer people that really think that those large beer companies are evil. And that's a whole other discussion because those are very marketing branding heavy companies that aren't all that interested in the product they're making, but a well-made macro beer can be pretty good. I've had a Pabst Blue Ribbon not that long ago and thought, you know, it's pretty damn good. Pretty good. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay with that. But there's also local versions you can get that are similar, probably better. Probably around the same price. Parallel 49 makes their craft Lager which is tasting really good these days. It's similar but I think maybe a little step up. Not gonna throw you off if that's what you're aiming for. So, so that's great. Um, in terms of unexpected pairings, yeah some Sometimes something just works. Now, I, I would never say this would work again, but I did have a Cezanne du Dupont, which is a, a Belgian farmhouse type beer, with an Aero chocolate bar once, and thought, wow, I don't know, it was just this bottle of beer or the time of day or what but this really is wonderful (laughs) for whatever reason this is working exactly so i'm I'm not saying that would ever happen again but at the time i thought you know this is good and i would stand behind this yeah yeah. well that is fantastic chad listen thank you so much for for being on Chef chefdemoni taking the time and and answering all of these questions well thank you so much i really appreciate it and i'm just so happy that uh, beer and craft beer particulars become such a thing in the world, in BC in particular. We're up to 160 breweries in BC now, so it's, there's no shortage of selection. And no signs of slowing? No, not at all, not at all.
0: From oysters and muscadet to beer and chocolate bars, this is what I'm loving about the people I meet through Chef Timoni. They love food and they love sharing their great food experiences and in doing that they're not remotely fussy or precious or worried about what other people think. Maybe that's the confidence that comes from being an expert, but I actually think it's something different. I think it's more likely to be that people who are passionate enough about something to become an expert in it, they're not interested in stringent rules or following trends or in anyone else's expectations. They're just interested in that thing, whether it's vegan food or paleo food or injera from Ethiopia or sourdough or craft beer or macro brew or whatever it happens to be. I'm delighted to be meeting these passionate people, and I hope you are too. Thanks for joining me here today for episode number four of Chef Demoni. It means a lot. Please remember to connect with the show on Instagram and Facebook, and I've got a favor to ask from you. I love tracking down the guests for the show, and I'm going to keep doing that, but I'd also love some listener input for the podcast as well. So if you've got a question you'd like to have answered on the show, or if there's a chef you'd like to hear from, or heck, even a lawyer let me know. You can message me on Instagram or Facebook, or just send me an email to graham at com. Okay, that's all for now. I'm Graham McLennan. Thanks for being here today, and please join me next time on Demoni.